Hello and welcome to the Combat and Classics podcast. I am uh, Brian Wilson from Dallas, Texas. And I'm Jeff Black from uh, the St. John's campus in Annapolis. And I'm Lise Van Boxel from the St. John's campus in Santa Fe, New Mexico. We are doing a, another seminar-ish thing today. Uh, we're going to be doing Plato's Alcibiades One Dialogue. Uh, Lise, why don't you get us started with a little background and our opening question. Okay, so Alcibiades is one of the most brilliant military men, but maybe just brilliant human beings in the history of the West, um, and certainly one of Socrates' most famous students and possibly a lover. So this dialogue, we see the first um, interaction between the two where they actually speak. And uh, Alcibiades is sort of, it looks like he is just entered adulthood, if he's a youth. And Socrates approaches him and basically says, um, okay, so I know you have a lot of lovers, but none of them have really been suitable for you because you're just superior to them. But I'm going to be the lover that is going to going to be suitable for you. And Alcibiades, who's very, very beautiful and physically um, um, a very fit man and very well placed in terms of his family, he, he uh, is the guardian, he's the ward of Pericles, um, sort of looks at Socrates, who's not a very attractive older guy, and sort of says, you know what, <laughs> yeah, you really have to make your case. And we learn um, as in, in the background of this, that Socrates has been following Alcibiades around since Alcibiades was a little boy, um, which sounds creepier than it is, um, uh, because he's been interested in something he's seen about Alcibiades' soul, it seems. And in particular, Alcibiades seems to be very confident um, that he's a remarkable human being. This seems to be tied to some um, sense of what uh, Plato's Socrates will call eros, some sense of a yearning for the beyond. And this seems to be of great interest to Socrates. Um, and he now says to Alcibiades in a way that suggests he, it might, um, it's, it's not clear whether he's actually seeing something in Alcibiades and by articulating it makes Alcibiades' desires actually uh, available even to Alcibiades or whether Al Socrates um, knows that Alcibiades has these thoughts. But either way, he says to Alcibiades, basically, I know that you want to rule the world. I know that you think your human life is contemptible unless you prove yourself to be the, the most remarkable human being. Um, and you are planning very soon to go before the Athenians and make the case that you ought to rule them. But guess what? You don't know what justice is. And this is where it sort of begins. And um, Alcibiades kind of says, well, yes, I do. Or how do you know I don't? And Socrates basically says, because I've been watching you kind of night and day. And I know everything about your education. And you can't tell me any time at which you learned such a thing. And over the course of the dialogue, he uh, makes it clear to Alcibiades that this is, in fact, true. By the end of the dialogue, Alcibiades basically says, yes, this is very important to me. And I'm, I'm never going to leave you because I, I want you to teach me this. And Socrates actually responds and says, yeah, I'm not going to leave you either. Um, but he twice throughout the dialogues iterates a concern about Athens. First, he says to Alcibiades, no, I think you are remarkable. I'm a little concerned that the city will corrupt you because you are so remarkable that the city will want to use you for their purposes. And by the end of the dialogue, almost the very end of it, he says, I'm concerned for both of us, that the city um, might uh, overcome both of us. Um, yeah. Well, and you say, you know, he wants to conquer the world. I, I specifically, and kind of the hook for our listeners potentially is, 
he wants to kind of conquer Athens from a political standpoint, right? He wants to basically be in charge. And then he also wants to conquer the world militarily, right? So right. he wants to either through demonstration of force or through actual force wants to conquer the world. And so it's an examination of justice kind of in that lens of internal politics and then warfare uh, or demonstration of force or military excellence or something like that. Yes, and we could, uh, for the purpose of our audience in particular, flesh out that in Thucydides' account of the Peloponnesian War, um, it's Alcibiades and particularly um, the Sicilian expedition that kind of is the demise of Athens as Thucydides presents it. Although uh, he also says, many people just blame Alcibiades for, for that, but Thucydides actually says, if one's careful, um, if the Athenians had turned themselves over to Alcibiades' rule, they would have been successful, but they didn't because the, because the city-state was being overcome by envy, and so it, it wouldn't grant or wouldn't recognize his superiority. So this is the man who, in the Athenian history, is extremely important. Yeah, maybe just uh, one thing to um, pull on in, in your summary there, Lisa, and it's connected to what Brian just said. Um, if the shape of the dialogue is something like this, uh, that Alcibiades is someone who wants to rule the world and uh, Socrates proves that he needs to know something that Socrates knows in order to do that, um, our listeners might be saying to themselves, oh, well, uh, I don't have to listen to this one because I don't want to rule the world. Uh, and I just wanted to underline something that, that you mentioned, at least, which was that either um, Alcibiades already had this desire or Socrates somehow brought it out of him. Uh, one thing that's probably worth talking about is whether uh, all of us want to rule the world in some way. And so this is of concern not just to the people who find themselves in uh, the highest political positions, but to everyone. Yeah, so that's helpful. And I think maybe one way into that, we could sort of begin this way with the question, is to understand the nature of Socrates' interest and the passion that seems to characterize Alcibiades, which is this thing that the ancient Greeks call eros. Um, elsewhere, we're told that Alcibiades actually has eros on his shield. So he identifies himself with that god. Um, so what is it? And as Jeff said, it doesn't seem to be a thing that's peculiar to Alcibiades or Socrates. It seems to be a deeply human thing. It's just that Alcibiades, and arguably Socrates as well, has it to this um, tremendous degree, maybe terrific degree, maybe magnificent degree. So let's maybe think about what this is, this thing, this passion. So then you're, to, to reframe your question is, is what is driving Alcibiades like what when he says Eros like what is what does he mean what yeah exactly yeah what is that passion um, which as Jeff said maybe isn't all of us to some degree yeah the thing that makes this I think a, a especially tricky question even though I think it's the right one is when you look at Alcibiades initially when Socrates depicts him to us or Plato depicts him to us initially it looks like uh, he's a guy who doesn't want anything Right? In other words, he's satisfied with his looks. They're very good. He's very tall. He's satisfied with his uh, breeding and his background. He comes from a noble family. He's satisfied with his wealth. Um, and the people who feel eros, the people who are longing or needy around him, uh, are the people who love him, not the people who he loves. Right? 
But it looks like uh, Socrates is very quickly able to uncover, and it looks like it's true, that even somebody with as much as Alcibiades seems to have uh, still wants a great deal. And I guess the question would be why. And, you know, there, there are two um, easy alternatives. Uh, maybe they reduce to the same thing. Uh, he knows he has a lot, but it's not enough. Or he realizes that what he has is not a lot. Um, and it looks like uh, both things might be true over the course of the dialogue. Does that seem right? It does, Jeff, and, and you do something very helpful there, I think, for, uh, for as you point out, people who maybe don't think um, or haven't recognized that they want to rule the world, and, and that is the, the lovers. We can probably find a hook there for audience members. Um, what you mentioned was, so Alcibiades has a lot of people that uh, want to be with him in various ways, sex, sexually, but I think also just, just find him inspiring to be around. And you have the sense from Socrates, and Alcibiades doesn't disagree, that he has some contempt for these people. That is, the, it's, a, it's presented in the language of domination, that his lovers all prove to be insufficient for him. And yet he does seem to be somehow looking through them for something, but nothing is satisfying. That seems to be important to our understanding of what this passion is that's driving him. I, I described it earlier as a yearning for something more, and that's manifesting in his, um, in his sexual and romantic life. These people are trying to impress him, but the inequality between what they are and his longing and what he is is just too great. Yeah, so is it that um, when Socrates suggests to Alcibiades that what he really wants is to rule the whole world, and Alcibiades doesn't disavow this desire, is it that he realizes that despite all the great things he has, um, he doesn't have what he deserves until he rules the world? Or is it that he feels that despite all the great things he has, there's something lacking in those things? That might be a difference between, say, in the former case, a concern with justice being the primary thing that's at work, and in the latter case, a concern with, with eros, right, a desire of some sort. Yeah, it does seem like in, um, so maybe a way to open up that question a little bit or the answer to it is to think about the way Socrates seduces him. Now, it's not, it's not a physical seduction here which I think is key because it looks, because I don't think Socrates is really in this particular arena, right? Alcibiades is one of the most beautiful men ever. Um, so what Socrates does is shows him, yeah, that there's something insufficient about Alcibiades' um, mind or soul at this point, right? That he, what he lacks is, is knowledge of what justice is. Um, and so certainly Socrates seems to either sharpen or highlight um, something that Alcibiades has not clearly seen before, right? That um, you have a, a longing and a longing, as Socrates presents it here, is an absence. So you actually, at some level, realize that despite all the many uh, great things you have, they're radically insufficient. Yeah, we often hear something like, um, I don't need to worry about questions like that. It's beyond my pay grade, Right. And I think the suggestion here is that uh, you do need to worry about questions like this because they're not beyond anybody's pay grade, right? In other words, the limited answers that we all might have for why we do this or that um, are limited precisely because they're not based on knowledge and they're not based on knowledge of the most important things. 
And so uh, apparently Socrates shows to Alcibiades over the course of the conversation to the extent that we can trust uh, Alcibiades' reactions that, yeah, he doesn't know the most important things that have to be the basis for the sorts of things he wants to do in his life. Right. So, okay, so back to the question of what a lover does. I think there's some point where Socrates um, is speaking about... uh, reflections or that in your in your lover or your beloved you want to see somehow a reflection of yourself and your capacity and that shows up an interesting image at the very end of the dialogue which actually um some of you might have a footnote for but socrates makes this claim um uh, he likens himself to a to a pelican <laughs> in passing and um and alcibiades uh, is it a stork and says um uh you know uh, um I'm like a stork that's delivering a youth, but the myth of the stork is that old storks are fed by younger storks. <laughs> and I, I think that that's tied to Eros, that somehow Socrates is identifying a similar passion in both of them. Uh, there might be differences as well, but there's something similar. And Alcibiades, in, in the vigor of his youth, um, has it in a way that Socrates finds inspiring but Socrates can feed it in a way that his his wisdom enables him to do that Alcibiades um, cannot do for himself at this point. Mm-hmm. I'd love to tease yeah. that out some more. Is you know, uh, I guess the most direct way I can ask this is you know what's the difference between Socrates's conception of Eros and Alcibiades' conception of Eros, and what is it driving them towards? I don't really, I don't have a theory, that's what I'm asking. <laughs> yeah, well let's, well, let's start with something uh, I'm always a fan of, starting with the, the simple things and working up. So the simple thing is, um, uh, Jeff touched on this, Alcibiades has this political ambition um, in the way that um, Brian, you sketched. Um, Socrates claims that he knows something fundamentally important that Alcibiades must know in order to get what he wants. So presumably he's implying, Socrates is implying that he therefore has this thing since he's able to give it, like the stork is able to uh, carry the, the young, the, the child. Um, and yet Socrates is not the ruler of the world and doesn't seem to have any interest in um, being um, directly politically active. That is, he does not, he's not in front of the people trying to make his case to rule. So there's a difference right there immediately that although they have something similar about their passion, Alcibiades thinks it'll be satisfied you know, by, by being another world conqueror. And Socrates either thinks that that's not correct, or this is a possibility too, thinks he doesn't have the, he himself does not have the capacity to fulfill his eros in that way, and therefore they need some sort of union, right, or alliance. Um, yeah, this underlines the respect in which um, it's not exactly true that um, Socrates, if he is to, able to communicate to Alcibiades what he knows, will be able to satisfy Alcibiades' longings, right? Alcibiades, it looks like Alcibiades thinks that I have these longings and I want to satisfy them. And Socrates thinks that they're misdirected. If they were properly directed, they wouldn't therefore be satisfied. They might still be unsatisfied, but they would at least be properly directed, right? Uh, Socrates also seems to have longings despite knowing what he knows. And they have to do, for example, uh, with associations with Alcibiades. So let's see, back to Brian's earlier question, if we can um, <clears throat> say a little bit more about, about longing. And I think, Jeff, you, you highlighted something important about it here. Longing 
as it's presented in this dialogue, is not a thing that stops. It's not like longing for a chocolate bar and then you have it and it's good for a little while. It looks like it's it's something in the soul that is always propelling you to supersede yourself, right? Something something like that. And so, although it's presented in a way as a as a lack, uh, you you want something you don't yet have. Um, I think there's also something about it that's tremendously fulfilling, namely this sense that you're constantly growing or moving ahead. Um, you're on the move and it's, it's, uh, it's an impressive thing as it's presented here, at least in part. Um, well, also like the, the political and the military, um, what not profession, I guess you could call it is it's kind of held up as something that's very difficult, right? And so you have Alcibiades who's like, I'm good at everything, right? I'm just, whatever I've decided to do, I'm successful at. Like, people esteem me for just being me. So I need to do something um, that's challenging. And then there's also, and it's something that, you know, it's evident to me, at least in the dialogue, that it's he hasn't really examined it, but the instinct is he needs to, you know, gain power politically, and or go to war, right? And that's something, you know, personally, at least the latter, I can relate to fairly significantly because, you know, you're kind of going through life and you're like, I'm pretty good at a couple of things. How do I, how do I, and then for whatever reason, you channel that into, I need to go to war. I need to be in combat, right? And that was a huge, I mean, I remember when I was 17 years old and, you know, doing my Naval Academy interview and they said, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I'm like, I want to be a Marine and get into combat. And it's just like, why? What? Why? And I don't, I don't know. It just seemed like that was a way to challenge myself. And that was a way that, you know, you know what your worth is in a situation like that. And so I see, you know, I'm, I'm overly personalizing or laying, you know, putting a layer of personalization on top of Alcibiades' motives. But it doesn't seem like he's really examined them too closely about why he wants to, you know, in his words or in Socrates' words, rule the world. Um, yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I, I mean, um, some military friends I know, that's how they describe it. So why do you, why do you want to go into combat? I want to kick indoors, right? There's, that, I think, is Eros, right? That's an example of Eros, the sense of wanting to feel yourself up against a challenge and have a kind of massive blowout of vitality, right? Um, to feel yourself uh, challenged in a way where things are really on the line, and you're facing them and trying to overcome them, or at least being challenged. That is, I think, Eros, the longing to be more than just the mundane day-to-day life. Yeah, yeah that's why he's... Think, oh, go ahead, Jeff. I was just going to say, I think it's particularly clear in the transition from Alcibiades' relations to his fellow Athenians to his relations to the Persians and the Lacedaemonians, right? He's, he's clearly superior to his fellow Athenians, and you could say, just on the grounds of justice alone, he deserves to rule and to uh, carry out those events in war and peace that Athens does, right, to be at the head of those events. But even when he's shown that he's inferior in the respects in which he prides himself to the Spartans and to the Persians, right, and to their leaders, he still wants to be able uh, to rule them as well, right? So it ceases to be a matter of justice, or the grounds on which he makes the argument for justice would seem to turn against him, but he still wants to be the one. Uh, to be first, right? And it looks like this is that um, pushing outward that Lisa's describing, right? This longing. Um, but sorry, go ahead, Brian. Well, no, I mean, it just, it, it I, what I'm seeing is like a lot of consistency with some of the heuristics that we hear about in the military, right? It's, 
um, lead follow or get the hell out of the way, right? And so that that might you know that that's guidance, but it might just be an instinct, right? It might be an instinct of, all right, I'm I I'm going to try to be the dominant, right? I'm going to try to be you know the most excellent, so I'm going to try to lead. And once I get up to somebody who is better, was more excellent, then I need to follow. Uh, and if I can't do that, then I got to go be a shipbuilder or a horse trainer or something like that because I realize that I can't be uh, my most excellent uh, person or my most just person in that. Forget. I'm going to try to figure out a different word than paradigm, but in that paradigm. Uh, of you know military uh, command structure or just fighting right or just going to war um, it's still a I'm gonna tee this up for at least will to power um, <laughs> yep. you know <laughs> over 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 your fellow men like and and it's it, you know there's something about that need in man to to do that that I think is being reflected in Alcibiades and is reflected in a lot of kind of the normal, like I said, heuristics in, in the military. Yeah. I have one little anecdote from the, this dialogue, which I love um, just for people who maybe haven't read it or haven't read it recently. One of the things Socrates presses Alcibiades on is like, when did you learn justice or, or when did, did Socrates become interested in Alcibiades? And I mentioned it was when Alcibiades was a child. And one of the remarkable stories he says is that um, Alcibiades and a bunch of boys are playing something like the equivalence of jacks in the middle of a road. And um, a chariot comes along and Alcibiades won't get out of the way. He just basically says, no, it's my turn. You, you go around me or you wait. And this is a little kid. But Socrates finds this very impressive. So to pick up on the cue you threw me, Brian, it is something like a tremendous sense of, of will to power or just the, the instinctual sense of being an alpha that Alcibiades seems to have, you know, that I am the sort of person that's not moving for your chariot. Um, and other people seem to recognize this too, right? Even, even the other little boys seem to recognize it, but I assume the chariot actually stopped and maybe there was some wonder that this kid has just stopped traffic in the midst of his game. Um, so given that sense of being an alpha, that it's maybe most uh, natural or immediately natural way of expressing itself would be in command, um, it's very strange that Socrates manages to shift that same... Um, impulse uh, or appetite from command to actually you need to start learning about justice. It's not the most natural thing, and yet um, that's what gets this very um, alpha guy. Yeah, there's a, a, you know, the saying lead follower, get out of the way is really helpful here, I think. Um, and one interpretation of it is that you follow if you can't lead or if you're unsuited for leadership. And I think that that's um, a dangerous conclusion to draw, or it's not quite adequate to the phenomena and to what we see depicted in the Alcibiades dialogue. It looks to me like it's exactly Alcibiades' capacity for um, leading that also makes him impressive as somebody uh, who wants to learn from Socrates, right? Or just to tip the Nietzschean hat again, it looks like the instinct for command and the instinct for obedience might be closely related, right? Or the instinct for command and the instinct for reverence. And so maybe Eros helps us join those two things together, right? That Eros is a, could be a reaching outward to something higher that you see above yourself, or it could be a pushing outward uh, so that you yourself become that higher thing. 
And maybe it goes back and forth depending upon the circumstances that you find yourself in as an erotic person. This has been an ongoing question for me about my uh, the relationship between Alcibiades and Socrates. One, um, maybe the more common way that relationship is understood is that um, Socrates sees in Alcibiades longing uh, to go beyond anything any other human being has done. He sees in that something like a promising impulse for a, a would-be philosopher, a potential philosopher. And Alcibiades is very bright and he has courage, which um, is necessary for philosophy uh, for reasons we can, we can get into if we have time. Um, but that Alcibiades somehow um, in the end doesn't quite cut it and he can't quite break away from the city, he gets co-opted by it. Another um, reading is that um, no, somehow these two sort of belong together in the way this dialogue suggests at the end of, the, of it being a mutual love affair that Alcibiades has gifts that Socrates doesn't. So Socrates getting up in front of the people doesn't have the, the physical prowess, the beauty, the family, etc. to rule, but Alcibiades does and, um, is, and that Socrates and Alcibiades somehow coming together make some new type of being, right? And therefore, Alcibiades, even in his political exploits later in his command positions, is not somehow a defective philosopher, but rather um, the two of them together might present the fullest account of what the philosopher wants or the human being wants. That um, Those are two different interpretations, but I think in this dialogue, we should entertain both when we, when we read it or think about it. So can we circle back to the question of um, what Alcibiades needs, it turns out, is knowledge? Because uh, I think there's, you know, when you're thinking about it in the context, say, of professional uh, military education, uh, uh, where the phrase learn and burn comes up uh, pretty frequently, uh, things that you need to know sometimes present themselves just as ways of winnowing out a large field, right, and picking the skilled from the unskilled, right? And in other cases, things that you need to know look like they're instrumental, right? How am I going to use this? Um, I need it for this task that I perform or that task that I perform. Or if I want to do this, I need to know that. Um, it's very hard to see and very hard to be persuaded on the face of it that knowledge of the soul is what somebody who wants to rule needs, what Alcibiades lacks and what he needs. So could we talk a little bit about that? Like, how, how should we understand that um, practically? Or what is it that impresses Alcibiades about that thought that moves him? Yeah, that's great. I think, um, especially because Alcibiades is such a remarkable military character, so one can't say, oh, yeah, but he's not the real guy uh, for the military human being. He, he really is. Um, and he knows, and I think he's right about this, actually, at least at the be beginning of the conversation, he knows that actually if he were to get up before the Athenians right now, without being able to articulate what justice is in that a way that would satisfy Socrates, he probably could, um, they probably would put him in charge. Um, and Socrates leads him through a series of um, question and answer, which I take to be, uh, Alcibiades gives the wrong answer in these cases, but it points to something. Socrates sort of says, well, you know, if you didn't know about shipbuilding or some such thing, and you got up in front of the people, do you think you could still persuade them to put you in charge of that thing that you know nothing about? And of course the answer is, uh, yes, although Alcibiades says no. I mean, if you were a clever speaker or manipulator, of course, you could probably get people to do that. But the problem is that you wouldn't know what you're doing. And and that seems to bother Alcibiades. So to go to Jeff's question, it's not so much that he couldn't command now, 
but the realization somehow that you don't know what you're doing in some deep way is bothering for this very military man. He's not just an action guy. Yeah, and you don't mean you don't know what you're doing in the sense that you don't know how to produce this effect or that effect on the battlefield or in the uh, you know a public debate or something like that. You mean you don't know what you're doing ultimately. In part, you don't know that what the way you're living is actually good for you. Exactly. Yeah. No, that was where, where I thought your point was so helpful. That um, you know, so the mil- military education as it is today involves a lot of like learn the facts, learn history, et cetera, and these things are important, but. Um, as you pointed out, Jeff, what Socrates says to Alcibiades is, yeah, but you can't tell me what justice is. So even though you could be effective in all these ways, that's just somehow radically inadequate. And Alcibiades doesn't say, yeah, I don't, I don't care. That's fine. He says, oh, my God, right? I'm going to follow you till I understand. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's something interesting about, I mean, you know, we're trying to <clears throat> kind of separate this idea, or at least I am, and, and one of the things I'm fascinated about is is the technical aspect of you know the military role, right? And when he talks about you know the liar player, you know playing the liar, or the shipbuilder building a ship, or the horseman training horses, you know there's there's a technical aspect of command. Um, but I wonder how much Alcibiades thinks that those technical aspects are not. They either don't exist, that it's all about kind of persona. Um, I mean, that seems to be what, that, that seems, like it doesn't ever come up, like, do you even know how to, you know, set up an offense or set up a defense or plan an attack or anything like that? It doesn't even come up. It's just, you know, there is an excellence that Alcibiades thinks he has and that apparently other Athenians have of him as well, that is the ability to command. Um, and the technical stuff can just come later. And so I'm just wondering, like, is is it is there some kind of nature of man that 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 happens? And it, you know, it might also be mimicked in the military because a lot of the military is selecting for leadership, right? Is just identifying who can be in charge and who has the um, episteme. I'll just drop some random Greek phrases. In there. Um, nobody will understand. Nobody understands. Uh, <laughs> it's all Greek to me. <laughs> um, who has that kind of innate episteme and just goes, well, I'm just, you know, whenever I'm in a situation, I just end up in charge. Right. And then we can, you know, teach you the technical aspects, but having gaps in knowledge of like, what is justice and being placed with that level of power. And this might get into like the closing of the, of the dialogue about the state, you know, not being able to survive because, you know, the state maybe doesn't really put a focus on that. It just puts a focus on who should command, but not so much as, you know, what are the fundamental precepts of, you know, justice and virtue. That's helpful. Let me pull out something you said, Brian, and apply it um, directly to Jeff's question or Jeff's comment. And that is um, the question, well, so Alcibiades probably could win. Socrates shows him he doesn't know what justice is. That uh, realization for Alcibiades is not folded into, oh, and therefore somehow I can't, I, I won't be able to convince the people that I should rule. It looks to me like it has uh, two parts to it. One, oh, that means I might actually not know how to command if I don't actually know what justice is. But maybe more, certainly more personally, maybe also more deeply, 
it might, for the first time ever, touch on Alcibiades' sense that he, of himself, that he is an alpha, that he ought to command. Let me put it this way, sort of sharply, that maybe he's not as lovable as he felt himself to be so far. Right? If he doesn't even know the grounds of that self-experience, which looks like it's been pretty good, um, that um, by realizing you can't even evaluate that self-experience, by Socrates showing Alcibiades that, Alcibiades realizes, oh, well, that's really the, the most important thing to me is I want to understand what I am and, and whether I'm lovable. That seems to tie back into the eros too, even to the notion of, well, I want to go kick in doors, right? Now it, it takes you to something um, much more private than that sort of outward expression of vitality or what, what Brian, Brian, you <laughs> called will to power, yeah. Here's a, a practical example of how this sort of question came up um, in a military setting. This was a recent conference on civil-military relations, and the question arose whether it was permissible to refuse an order on the grounds of conscience, as distinguished from the grounds of whether it was not a legal order, right? In other words, it violated some law, international or uh, uniform code of military justice. And there was a real fierce disagreement on this question. Um, and it came down to the point that um, you could refuse it, but you should expect to be prosecuted for your, your refusal, right? Now, this uh, sets it all in a legal setting, which doesn't come up here as explicitly as it did in the, in the conversation I'm reporting. But it does show that, uh, you know, even now we're kind of of two minds about what uh, the fundamental thing is. Right? Uh, are we uh, uh, obeying orders in the context of the law, or are we beholden to something else like conscience in our decisions? Right? And this, it sounds to me like, is like uh, the fundamental question that Alcibiades is facing. What is the uh, human being such that I know what's good for it and what's good for other human beings? Where should I be looking to find those things out? Right? If I yes, don't know I... that. Sorry, go ahead, Lisa. Well, I was going to say, and beginning with oneself, that is, Socrates. Uh, precipitates a split in Alcibiades where suddenly part of him is looking at him, right, and saying, trying to evaluate in a way he did not before. Yeah, it does seem ironically enough that Socrates becomes a lover of Alcibiades. I'm sorry, uh, that Alcibiades becomes a lover of Socrates by the end, right, because he feels needy and he thinks that Socrates has the thing that he needs, right, which is a strange reversal for a man who has had nothing but lovers of him. Uh, heretofore. Well, I think another way to kind of describe what you're talking about, Jeff, um, with whether or not you can follow a rule based on conscious or follow an order based on conscious kind of comes down to the same idea of love, right? Is, you know, do you love, at some level, conscience is justice. And so do you have an understanding of justice? Um, and is that understanding uh, consistent with a universal justice versus a particular justice? Um, and do you love that more than yourself? Are you willing to suffer the consequences of that decision? And, you know, something that I think is, um, you know, most of our listeners are military folks, but, you know, for the folks that aren't, I, I, I kind of constantly tell people um, about my experience in military is, is you'd be shocked at how much time we get spent on being trained on when to disobey an order, you right. know, and, and how to, and how we have to think through the order, its consequences and its, um, 
its uh, framework and in, in sense of universal justice. And this could be something as simple as um, you know rules of engagement, or it could be something as complex as um, you know looking at particular um, tactical scenarios and saying you know what's what was the right thing to do here and what was the wrong thing to do because just following orders is not a viable excuse to do anything um, and you know there's a lot of gray area there but I think for for most folks that don't know much about the military a lot of the things you you get are well you guys just kind of do what you're told and I'm like I can count on like one hand the number of times I was like told to do something in the entire time I was in the military. It's shocking how much it's like, no, you've got the tools. You just, we've taught you, we've given you the tools, like, you know, understanding justice, understanding what your role is, understanding what your mission is, understanding the chain of command. And now you got to figure it out. Um, and that's, I mean, this is part of the reason why we do this podcast, right, is to, is to look at that in a great books conceptualization and look at it in a more universal uh, way. But it's, it's, you know, the two... And I don't want to overly reduce the dialogue, but the two key things that I'm trying to like tease out in the dialogue are, you know, first off, what is the nature of the, the loves that Socrates and Alcibiades are demonstrating um, or discussing? And then, you know, that kind of final piece is, you know, can we survive being a part of the state and keep those conceptions? Mm-hmm. This suggests to me another interpretation of everybody wants to rule the world, right? Tears for Fears had it right. <laughs> but what, what it means is um, everybody wants the ground on which they make choices or decisions in life to be supported by the way the world is, right? Which, if you think about it, is kind of like filling the world with yourself or hoping or longing that the world is like you and it has the same judgments that you do. Yeah, so, so this is more of a literary observation. I, I'd like to bring it back to something a little more practically relevant for our audience. But um, Jeff, I want to go back to what you did a few, a few minutes ago. That is that we talked about how Alcibiades, as a result of Socrates pressing him, sort of divides within himself or gets a new perspective on himself that he didn't have before. Namely, am I just? Do I actually know what I'm doing? Is my sense that I'm a commander and that I love myself um, proper. Then by the end of the dialogue, it looks like that aspect, that questioning, more rational aspect of Alcibiades might be um, represented by Socrates. I mean, if the, the thesis is correct that somehow these two parts belong together, that we might be looking at a single human being with aspects you know, interacting. Um, and now, Jeff, you've just added on to that, that in a way, uh, the world does that for the human being as well, right? That there's a kind of mirroring between what's external and internal and a testing between these two things, right? Um, but maybe we could try make that a little less literary or, or philosophic and, and return to the, the very practical uh, element that the dialogue has, the way it really speaks to, say, military folks or other audiences. So it's not just a, well, that's an interesting literary thing he's done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was super deep, though, Lee. So I'm trying to process, <laughs> trying to process that deep philosophical truth. And, we can have a moment of silence. And, you know, this is this is part of the double-edged sword of my role in the podcast, <laughs> which is I I actually I hate cheating and talking about like my personal experiences, but that's kind of my role. Like for for our listeners, most St. John's seminars you don't really talk about yourself; you just talk about the work, and I really like that. 
and then I now I now and like because Lisa's basically nodding at me on the camera like practical stuff Brian you should say something and I'm like no I really just want to deal with these philosophical truths these these pieces of it so wait well maybe I could put it this yeah. way and 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 I I won't simply single you up Brian um, but maybe it's particular to you does this resonate that um, somebody who has you know understands himself to be sort of an alpha type in command wants to go kick in the doors etc. Um, has this moment that Jeff described where suddenly um, your interaction with the world becomes strange to you, right? Such that you you somehow want to see, as Jeff put it, some um, harmony, I don't know, commensurability, but certainly harmony between your sense of what you ought to be doing, but, but that the world somehow needs to confirm this or mirror your sense. I think the really tricky part that I'm trying to wrap my head around right now is um, is that layer of, of, of techne, right? That layer of technical and that core Skills. of, yeah, that core of episteme, that core of like knowledge of how the world works and how you, you have to, it's, it's, it's a laboratory type of thing, right? We have to test and test and test and test and test. And that's what most military training is about is just rep repetition, repetition, repetition. And it's the same with, you know, playing the liar or playing sports or something like that is that you have to, you have to hone the technical so that it's not, you don't have to think about it. It's just, you know, you, you know how to technically execute anything that you need to do more or less. I think where we get into a lot of trickiness is, you know, there's a saying in the Marine Corps that's like, however, however crappy your plan is, brief it like it's the best plan you've ever had. Like it's the best plan the world has ever known. And so it's a false confidence in what you're trying to do, which will imbue the people that you're working with with confidence as well. But it's trying to find that balance of having that in some part of you, that core like, is this the right thing? Should I, you know, should I be doing this? Like, is this, is this the right way to go about it? Am I, you know, uh, am I A going to, you know, accomplish the mission and B, well, not even A and B, am I, you know, equal parts, you know, going to accomplish what I need to accomplish and am I going to do the right thing while I'm doing it? And you have to have that kind of constant experimentation and that data kind of in your head and in your soul of what works and what doesn't work. And you have to have that kind of constant feedback from the world and from the people that you work with um, on whether or not what you're going to do works. And it's, it's very difficult um, when, you, when you're a, like an Alcibiades type where you, you're kind of, you have a lot of confidence um, and you have a lot of, um, and other people think that you have a lot of ability and then, and you're, and you're, you're taught how to like, you know, and you're taught to build on that confidence. You're taught to, you know, always approach a problem like you can solve it and you're going to do it. And then you mess up like a decent amount, which happens when you're a youth, you know? I mean, I remember when I was 24, uh, I was in charge of all NATO human operations in Bosnia as a 24-year-old. And so you have to go, all right, here's what we're doing, and be utterly uh, confident in that. But then you also have to be humble enough to go, I have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, and so I feel like, though, that's, Probably when you're talking about the Socrates Alcibiades duality, it's probably critically important for you know the folks in our audience and military in general is 
you have to have some part of you that's Alcibiades and just some, no, I can do it. I got it. But then you have to have some part of you that's Socratic and going, do I have any clue what I'm talking about? Do I have any understanding of why this is? And in a more universal sense, right? In a kind of global, universal, you know, how does this fit in terms of the state? How does this fit in terms of justice? Um, and how does this fit in terms of my role as, you know, shipbuilder, horseman, you know, kind of thing. But you... It's got to be there, but it's got to be, it's got to be like the, the hardware of, you know, your inner computer and not the software. The software is the technical piece and the hardware is, you know, the stuff that you just, you can't change. And the hardware has got to have that examination of justice and that examination of, you know, every single kind of universal in human existence in order for you to kind of execute the right way. That was a really long rant. It probably didn't make any sense. No, 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 no that's helpful. No. I was um, going to say... Oh, yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Lise. Uh, helpful in this way, I think. Um, so with Alcibiades, um, he, he's confident with respect to the Athenians. And then Socrates says, yeah, but you have no idea about the Persians. They're going to look ridiculous compared to the Persians. And that starts to... That shakes Alcibiades a little bit. So, as we said before, he gets Alcibiades' little voice going that says, do I actually know what I'm doing? But the way you put it, Brian, I think I, I would add on to it that this alpha type, this, I mean, maybe all of us um, to greater or lesser degrees, but certainly somebody who understands themselves as a commander, feels themselves to be a commander and wants to command, they have to have an adequate answer to that question, right? So that it's not just, do I know what I'm, you know, I don't, I don't really know what I'm doing. Yes, but... I can work it out, and so I can arrive at the best answer someone could reasonably have in this circumstance, or that I could reasonably have in this circumstance, and it is adequate. Um, so I guess there it looks to me like once uh, Socrates expands Alcibiades' world and says you know, you're going to be in context where you really are without a net from other people, right? That you're not, you don't have the Athenians there with all their customs telling you how to behave. You you better be able to provide your own structure and your own answers to that voice that comes up and says, do I know what the heck I'm doing? So. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I think I'd uh, I have a third way of putting the point that each of us is trying to make here. Uh, we have powers, but they're limited, right? Uh, by having powers, we need the knowledge of how to use those powers. That's the technical piece. We need that. It's indispensable. Uh, by having limited power, we need the persuasive piece, right? The ability to depict uh, our powers as greater than they are or the dangers as uh, less than they really are uh, in order to move people. Um, but the third thing, uh, this thing I think uh, Alcibiades uh, doesn't yet have, could be understood in this way. Um, because our powers are limited, we won't succeed sometimes. And the meaning of success and failure um, is, is a question and a problem. Just because I succeeded doesn't mean that uh, everything I did was right, and just because I failed doesn't mean that everything I did was wrong. So being able to ground the meaning of success and failure in a situation where there'll be some of each, right, like in every human life, I think is what the Socratic grounding is offering. And that's a third thing in addition to the technical piece and the persuasive piece, both of which Alcibiades seems to have. I, uh, I think that might be a, a good point to end on here. We're coming up on uh, close to an hour. Um, so uh, if any of you guys want to put another final point in there, or do we want to just wrap right there? 
Well, I'm good. Lise, do you have a last word? No, I'm, I'm good, except that you should, all, you should all learn more about Alcibiades if you can. But. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that that's what's, you know, just to reinforce this, we mentioned this in other pods is, you know, you should leave here uh, with more questions, <laughs> you know, not necessarily answers. We don't finish these up with, and these are the three things you should have learned from Alcibiades <laughs> 1, right? Uh, there are no terminal learning objectives uh, when you're talking about these universal truths and when you're talking about the great books. So uh, thank you, Lise. And uh, thank you, Jeff. Uh, thank and, you, Brian. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. And I, I get another get out of jail card uh, where I don't have to talk about the book that much. <laughs> <laughs> I just go back in my day, back in the old core. <laughs> um, yeah. So thank you guys a lot. And uh, we will um, be out with some more episodes. Okay. Okay. Until next Bye-bye. time. Mm-hmm.